Chapter Two of the Italian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Natalie Myers. The Italian by Anne Radcliffe. Chapter Two. Olivia, why? What would you, Viola? Make me a willow cabin at your gate, and call upon my soul within the house. Write loyal cantos of contempt love, and sing them loud even in the dead of night. Hallow your name to the reverberate hills, and make the babbling gossip of the air cry out, Olivia! Oh, you should not rest between the elements of air and earth, but you should pity me. Twelfth Night since Vivaldi had failed to procure an explanation of the words of the monk, he determined to relieve himself from the tortures of suspense, respecting a rival by going to the Via Altieri, and declaring his pretensions. On the morning immediately following his late adventure, he went thither, and on inquiring for Signora Bianchi was told that she could not be seen. With much difficulty, he prevailed upon the old housekeeper to deliver a request that he might be permitted to wait upon her for a few moments. Permission was granted him when he was conducted into the very apartment where he had formerly seen Elena. It was unoccupied, and he was told that Signora Bianchi would be there presently. During this interval, he was agitated at one moment with quick impatience, and at another with enthusiastic pleasure while he gazed on the altar whence he had seen Elena rise, and where, to his fancy, she still appeared, and on every object on which he knew her eyes had lately dwelt. These objects, so familiar to her, had in the imagination of Vivaldi acquired somewhat of the sacred character she had impressed upon his heart, and affected him in some degree as her presence would have done. He trembled as he took up the lute she had been accustomed to touch, and when he awakened the chords, her own voice seemed to speak. A drawing, half-finished, of a dancing nymph remained on a stand, and he immediately understood that her hand had traced the lines. It was a copy from Herculaneum, and though a copy, was touched with the spirit of original genius. The light steps appeared almost to move, and the whole figure displayed the airy lightness of exquisite grace. Vivaldi perceived this to be one of a set that ornamented the apartment, and observed with surprise that they were the particular subjects which adorned his father's cabinet, and which he had understood to be the only copies permitted from the originals in the Royal Museum. Every object on which his eyes rested seemed to announce the presence of Elena, and the very flowers that so gaily embellished the apartment breathed forth a perfume which fascinated his senses and affected his imagination. Before Signora Bianchi appeared, his anxiety and apprehension had increased so much that believing he should be unable to support himself in her presence, he was more than once upon the point of leaving the house. At length he heard her approaching step from the hall, and his breath almost forsook him. 
The figure of Signora Bianchi was not of an order to inspire admiration, and a spectator might have smiled to see the perturbation of Vivaldi, his faltering step and anxious eye, as he advanced to meet the venerable Bianchi, as he bowed upon her faded hand and listened to her querulous voice. She received him with an air of reserve, and some moments passed before he could recollect himself sufficiently to explain the purpose of his visit. Yet this, when he discovered it, did not apparently surprise her. She listened with composure, though with somewhat of a severe countenance, to his protestations of regard for her niece, and when he implored her to intercede for him in obtaining the hand of Elena, she said, I cannot be ignorant that a family of your rank must be averse to an union with one of mine, nor am I unacquainted that a full sense of the value of birth is a marking feature in the characters of the Marchesi and Marchesa de Vivaldi. This proposal must be disagreeable, or at least unknown to them. And I am to inform you, Signor, that though Signora de Rosalba is their inferior in rank, she is their equal in pride. Vivaldi disdained to prevaricate, yet was shocked to own the truth thus abruptly. The ingenuous manner, however, with which he at length did this, and the energy of a passion too eloquent to be misunderstood, somewhat soothed the anxiety of Signora Bianchi, with whom other considerations began to arise. She considered that from her own age and infirmities she must very soon, in the course of nature, leave Elena, a young and friendless orphan, still somewhat dependent upon her own industry and entirely so on her discretion. With much beauty and little knowledge of the world, the dangers of her future situation appeared in vivid colors to the affectionate mind of Signora Bianchi, and she sometimes thought that it might be right to sacrifice considerations which in other circumstances would be laudable to the obtaining for her niece the protection of a husband and a man of honor. If in this instance she descended from the lofty integrity which ought to have opposed her consent that Elena should clandestinely enter any family, her parental anxiety may soften the censure she deserved. But before she determined upon this subject, it was necessary to ascertain that Vivaldi was worthy of the confidence she might repose in him. To try also the constancy of his affection, she gave little present encouragement to his hopes. His request to see Elena she absolutely refused, till she should have considered further of his proposals, and his inquiry whether he had a rival, and if he had, whether Elena was disposed to favor him. She evaded, since she knew that to reply would give more encouragement to his hopes than it might hereafter be proper to confirm. Vivaldi at length took his leave, released indeed from absolute despair, but scarcely encouraged to hope, ignorant that he had a rival, yet doubtful whether Elena honored himself with any share of her esteem. He had received permission to wait upon Signora Bianchi on a future day, but till that day should arrive, time appeared motionless, and since it seemed utterly impossible to endure this interval of suspense, his thoughts on the way to Naples were wholly engaged in contriving the means of concluding it, till he reached the well-known arch, and looked around, though hopelessly, for his mysterious tormentor. The stranger did not appear. 
and Vivaldi pursued the road, determined to revisit the spot at night, and also to return privately to Villa Altieri, where he hoped a second visit might procure for him some relief from his present anxiety. When he reached home, he found that the Marchesi, his father, had left an order for him to await his arrival, which he obeyed. But the day passed without his return. The Marchesa, when she saw him, inquired, with a look that expressed much, how he had engaged himself of late, and completely frustrated his plans for the evening by requiring him to attend her to Portisi. Thus he was prevented from receiving Bernardo's determination, from watching at Poluzzi, and from revisiting Elena's residence. He remained at Portisi the following evening, and, on his return to Naples, the Marchesi being again absent, he continued ignorant of the intended subject of the interview. A note from Bonermo brought a refusal to accompany him to the fortress, and urged him to forbear so dangerous a visit. Being for this night unprovided with a companion for the adventure, and unwilling to go alone, Vivaldi deferred it to another evening. But no consideration could deter him from visiting the Via Altieri, not choosing to solicit his friend to accompany him thither, since he had refused his first request, he took his solitary lute and reached the garden at an earlier hour than usual. The sun had been set above an hour, but the horizon still retained somewhat of a saffron brilliancy, and the whole dome of the sky had an appearance of transparency peculiar to this enchanting climate, which seemed to diffuse a more soothing twilight over the reposing world. In the southeast, the outline of Vesuvius appeared distinctly, but the mountain itself was dark and silent. Vivaldi heard only the quick and eager voices of some Lazzaroni at a distance on the shore as they contended at the simple game of Maro. From the bowery lattices of a small pavilion within the orangery, he perceived a light, and the sudden hope which it occasioned of seeing Elena almost overcame him. It was impossible to resist the opportunity of beholding her, yet he checked the impatient step he was taking to ask himself whether it was honorable thus to steal upon her retirement and become an unsuspected observer of her secret thoughts. But the temptation was too powerful for this honorable hesitation. The pause was momentary, and, stepping lightly towards the pavilion, he placed himself near an open lattice, so as to be shrouded from observation by the branches of an orange tree, while he obtained a full view of the apartment. Elena was alone, sitting in a thoughtful attitude and holding her lute, which she did not play. She appeared lost to a consciousness of surrounding objects, and a tenderness was on her countenance, which seemed to tell him that her thoughts were engaged by some interesting subject. Recollecting that, when last he had seen her thus, she pronounced his name, his hope revived, and he was going to discover himself and appear at her feet, when she spoke, and he paused. "'Why this unreasonable pride of birth?' said she. "'A visionary prejudice destroys our peace. Never would I submit to enter a family averse to receive me. They shall learn at least that I inherit nobility of soul. Oh, Vivaldi, but for this unhappy prejudice!' Vivaldi, while he listened to this, was immovable. He seemed as if entranced. 
The sound of her lute and voice recalled him, and he heard her sing the first stanza of the very air with which he had opened the serenade on a former night, and with such sweet pathos as the composer must have felt when he was inspired with the idea. She paused at the conclusion of the first stanza, when Vivaldi, overcome by the temptation of such an opportunity for expressing his passion, suddenly struck the chords of the lute, and replied to her in the second. The tremor of his voice, though it restrained his tones, heightened its eloquence. Elena instantly recollected it. Her color alternately faded and returned, and before the verse concluded, she seemed to have lost all consciousness. Vivaldi was now advancing into the pavilion, when his approach recalled her. She waved him to retire, and before he could spring to her support, she rose, and would have left the place had he not interrupted her and implored a few moments' attention. "'It is impossible,' said Elena. "'Let me only hear you say that I am not hateful to you,' rejoined Vivaldi, that this intrusion has not deprived me of the regard with which but now you acknowledged you honoured me. Oh, never, never, interrupted Elena, impatiently. Forget that I ever made such acknowledgment. Forget that you ever heard it. I know not what I said. Ah, beautiful Elena, do you think it possible I ever can forget it? It will be the solace of my solitary hours, the hope that shall sustain me. I cannot be detained, Signor interrupted Elena, still more embarrassed, or forgive myself for having permitted such a conversation. But as she spoke the last words, an involuntary smile seemed to contradict their meaning. Vivaldi believed the smile in spite of the words, but before he could express the lightning joy of conviction, she had left the pavilion. He followed through the garden, but she was gone. From this moment, Vivaldi seemed to have arisen into a new existence. The whole world to him was paradise. That smile seemed impressed upon his heart forever. In the fullness of present joy, he believed it impossible that he could ever be unhappy again, and defied the utmost malice of future fortune. With footsteps light as air, he returned to Naples, nor once remembered to look for his old monitor on the way. The Marchesi and his mother being from home, he was left at his leisure to indulge the rapturous recollection that pressed upon his mind, and of which he was impatient of a moment's interruption. All night he either traversed his apartment with an agitation equal to that which anxiety had so lately inflicted, or composed and destroyed letters to Elena, sometimes fearing that he had written too much, and at others feeling that he had written too little recollecting circumstances which he ought to have mentioned, and lamenting the cold expression of a passion to which it appeared that no language could do justice. By the hour when the domestics had risen, he had, however, completed a letter somewhat more to his satisfaction, and he dispatched it to the Via Altieri by a confidential person. But the servant had scarcely quitted the gates when he recollected new arguments which he wished to urge, and expressions to change of the utmost importance to enforce his meaning, and he would have given half the world to have recalled the messenger. In this state of agitation he was summoned to attend the Marchese, who had been too much engaged of late to keep his own appointment. Vivaldi was not long in doubt as to the subject of this interview. "'I have wished to speak with you,' said the Marchese, assuming an air of haughty severity, upon a subject of the utmost importance to your honour and happiness, 
and I wished also to give you an opportunity of contradicting a report which would have occasioned me considerable uneasiness if I could have believed it. Happily I had too much confidence in my son to credit this, and I affirmed that he understood too well what was due both to his family and himself to take any step derogatory from the dignity of either. My motive for this conversation, therefore, is merely to afford you a moment for refuting the calumny I shall mention, and to obtain for myself authority for contradicting it to the persons who have communicated it to me. Vivaldi waited impatiently for the conclusion of this exordium, and then begged to be informed of the subject of the report. It is said, resumed the Marchese, that there is a young woman who is called Elena Rosalba, I think that is the name. Do you know any person of the name? Do I know? exclaimed Vivaldi. But pardon me, pray proceed, my lord. The Marchese paused, and regarded his son with sternness, but without surprise. It is said that a young person of this name has contrived to fascinate your affections, and— It is most true, my lord, that Signora Rosalba has won my affections, interrupted Vivaldi with honest impatience, but without contrivance. I will not be interrupted, said the Marchese, interrupting his turn. It is said that she has so artfully adapted her temper to yours, that, with the assistance of a relation who lives with her— she has reduced you to the degrading situation of her devoted suitor. Signora Rosalba has, my lord, exalted me to the honor of being her suitor, said Vivaldi, unable longer to command his feelings. He was proceeding, when the Marchesi abruptly checked him. You avow your folly, then? My lord, I glory in my choice. Young man, rejoined his father, as this is the arrogance and romantic enthusiasm of a boy, I am willing to forgive it for once, and observe me only for once. If you will acknowledge your error, instantly dismiss this new favorite, my lord. You must instantly dismiss her, repeated the Marchese with sterner emphasis. And to prove that I am more merciful than just, I am willing on this condition to allow her a small annuity, as some reparation for the depravity in which you have assisted to sink her. My lord! exclaimed Vivaldi, aghast, and scarcely daring to trust his voice. My lord, depravity? Struggling for breath. Who has dared to pollute her spotless fame by insulting your ears with such infamous falsehood? Tell me, I conjure you, instantly tell me, that I may hasten to give him his reward. Depravity! An annuity! An annuity! Oh, Elena, Elena! As he pronounced her name, tears of tenderness mingled with those of indignation. "'Young man,' said the Marchese, who had observed the violence of his emotion with strong displeasure and alarm, "'I do not lightly give faith to report, and I cannot suffer myself to doubt the truth of what I have advanced. You are deceived, and your vanity will continue the delusion unless I condescend to exert my authority and tear the veil from your eyes.' Dismiss her instantly, and I will adduce proof of her former character, which will stagger even your faith, enthusiastic as it is. Dismiss her, repeated Vivaldi, with calm yet stern energy, such as his father had never seen him assume. My lord, you have never doubted my word, and I now pledge you that honorable word that Elena is innocent, innocent. 
Oh, heavens, that it should ever be necessary to affirm so, and above all, that it should ever be necessary for me to vindicate her. I must indeed lament that it ever should, replied the Marchese coldly. You have pledged your word, which I cannot question. I believe, therefore, that you are deceived, that you think her virtuous, notwithstanding your midnight visits to her house. And grant she is, unhappy boy, what reparation can you make her for the infatuated folly which has thus stained her character? What? By proclaiming to the world, my lord, that she is worthy of becoming my wife, replied Vivaldi with a glow of countenance, which announced the courage and the exaltation of a virtuous mind. Your wife? said the Marchese, with a look of ineffable disdain, which was instantly succeeded by one of angry alarm. If I believed you could so far forget what is due to the honor of your house, I would forever disclaim you as my son. Oh, why, exclaimed Vivaldi, in an agony of conflicting passions, why should I be in danger of forgetting what is due to a father, when I am only asserting what is due to innocence, when I am only defending her, who has no other to defend her? Why may not I be permitted to reconcile duties so congenial? But be the event what it may, I will defend the oppressed, and glory in the virtue which teaches me that it is the first duty of humanity to do so. Yes, my lord, if it must be so, I am ready to sacrifice inferior duties to the grandeur of principle, which ought to expand all hearts and impel all actions. I shall best support the honor of my house by adhering to its dictates. Where is the principle? said the Marchese impatiently. Which shall teach you to disobey a father? Where is the virtue which shall instruct you to degrade your family? There can be no degradation, my lord, where there is no vice, replied Vivaldi. And there are instances, pardon me, my lord, there are some few instances in which it is virtuous to disobey. This paradoxical morality said the Marchese, with passionate displeasure, and this romantic language sufficiently explained to me the character of your associates, and the innocence of her whom you defend with so chivalric an air. Are you to learn, Signor, that you belong to your family, not your family to you, that you are only a guardian of its honor, and not at liberty to dispose of yourself? My patience will endure no more." nor could the patience of Ivaldi endure this repeated attack on the honor of Elena. But while he yet asserted her innocence, he endeavored to do so with temper, which was due to the presence of a father, and, though he maintained the independence of a man, he was equally anxious to preserve inviolate the duty of a son. But unfortunately the Marchese and Vivaldi differed in opinion concerning the limits of these duties, the first extending them to passive obedience, and the latter conceiving them to conclude at a point wherein the happiness of an individual is so deeply concerned as in marriage. They parted mutually inflamed, Vivaldi unable to prevail with his father to mention the name of his infamous informant, or to acknowledge himself convinced of Elena's innocence, and the Marchese, equally unsuccessful in his endeavors to obtain from his son a promise that he would see her no more. Here, then, was Vivaldi, who only a few short hours before had experienced a happiness so supreme as to efface all impressions of the past, and to annihilate every consideration of the future, a joy so full that it permitted him not to believe it possible that he could ever again taste of misery. 
he who had felt as if that moment was as an eternity rendering him independent of all others even he was thus soon fallen into the region of time and of suffering the present conflict of passion appeared endless he loved his father and would have been more shocked to consider the vexation he was preparing for him had he not been resentful of the contempt he expressed for elena he adored elena and while he felt the impracticability of resigning his hopes was equally indignant at the slander which affected her name and impatient to avenge the insult upon the original defamer though the displeasure of his father concerning a marriage with elena had been already foreseen the experience of it was severer and more painful than he had imagined while the indignity offered to elena was as unexpected as intolerable but this circumstance furnished him with an additional argument for addressing her for if it had been possible that his love could have paused his honour seemed now engaged in her behalf and since he had been a means of selling her fame it became his duty to restore it willingly listening to the dictates of a duty so plausible he determined to persevere in his original design but his first efforts were directed to discover her slanderer and recollecting with surprise those words of the marchesi which had confessed a knowledge of his evening visits to the via altieri the doubtful warnings of the monk seemed explained he believed that this man was at once the spy of his steps and the defamer of his love till the inconsistency of such conduct with the seeming friendliness of his admonition struck vivaldi and compelled him to believe the contrary meanwhile the heart of elena had been little less tranquil it was divided by love and pride but had she been acquainted with the circumstances of the late interview between the marchesi and vivaldi it would have been divided no longer and just regard for her own dignity would instantly have taught her to subdue without difficulty this infant affection signora bianchi had informed her niece of the subject of vivaldi's visit but she had softened the objectionable circumstances that attended his proposal and had at first merely hinted that it was not to be supposed his family would approve a connection with any person so much their inferior in rank as herself elena alarmed by this suggestion replied that since she believed so she had done right to reject vivaldi's suit but her sigh as she said this did not escape the observation of signora bianchi who ventured to add that she had not absolutely rejected his offers while in this and future conversations elena was pleased to perceive her secret admiration thus justified by an approbation so indisputable as that of her aunt and was willing to believe that the circumstance which had alarmed her just pride was not so humiliating as she at first imagined beyond she was careful to conceal the real considerations which had induced her to listen to vivaldi being well assured that they would have no weight with elena whose generous heart and inexperienced mind would have revolted from mingling any motives of interest with an engagement so sacred as that of marriage when however from further deliberation upon the advantages which such an alliance must secure for her niece signora bianchi determined to encourage his views and to direct the mind of elena whose affections were already engaged on her side the opinions of the latter were found less ductile than had been expected 
she was shocked at the idea of entering clandestinely the family of Avaldi. But Bianchi, whose infirmities urged her wishes, was now so strongly convinced of the prudence of such an engagement for her niece, that she determined to prevail over her reluctance, though she perceived that this must be by means more gradual and persuasive than she had believed necessary. On the evening, when Vivaldi had surprised from Elena an acknowledgment of her sentiments, her embarrassment and vexation, on her returning to the house, and relating what had occurred, sufficiently expressed to Signora Bianchi the exact situation of her heart. And when, on the following morning, his letter arrived, written with the simplicity and energy of truth, the aunt neglected not to adapt her remarks upon it, to the character of Elena, with her usual address. Vivaldi, after the late interview with the Marchese, passed the remainder of the day in considering various plans, which might discover to him the person who had abused the credulity of his father, and in the evening he returned once more to the Via Altieri, not in secret, to serenade the dark balcony of his mistress, but openly, and to converse with Signora Bianchi, who now received him more courteously than on his former visit. Attributing the anxiety in his countenance to the uncertainty concerning the disposition of her niece, she was neither surprised or offended, but ventured to relieve him from a part of it by encouraging his hopes. Vivaldi dreaded lest she should inquire further respecting the sentiments of his family, but she spared both his delicacy and her own on this point, and, after a conversation of considerable length, he left the Via Altieri with a heart somewhat soothed by approbation, and lightened by hope, although he had not obtained a sight of Elena. The disclosure she had made of her sentiments on the preceding evening, and the hints she had received as to those of his family, still wrought upon her mind with too much effect to permit an interview. Soon after his return to Naples, the Marchesa, whom he was surprised to find disengaged, sent for him to her closet, where a scene passed similar to that which had occurred with his father, except that the Marchesa was more dexterous in her questions, and more subtle in her whole conduct, and that Vivaldi never for a moment forgot the decorum which was due to a mother. Managing his passions rather than exasperating them, and deceiving them with respect to the degree of resentment she felt from his choice, she was less passionate than the Marchesa in her observations and menaces, perhaps, only because she entertained more hope than he did of preventing the evil she contemplated. Vivaldi quitted her, unconvinced by her arguments, unsubdued by her prophecies, and unmoved in his designs. He was not alarmed because he did not sufficiently understand her character to apprehend her purposes. Despairing to effect these by open violence, she called in an auxiliary of no mean talents, and whose character and views well adapted him to be an instrument in her hands, it was, perhaps, the baseness of her own heart, not either depth of reflection or keenness of penetration, which enabled her to understand the nature of his, and she determined to modulate that nature to her own views. There lived in the Dominican convent of the Spiritu Santo at Naples a man called Father Scadoni, an Italian, as his name imported, but whose family was unknown, and from some circumstances it appeared that he wished to throw an impenetrable veil over his origin. For whatever reason he was never heard to mention a relative, or the place of his nativity, and he had artfully eluded every inquiry that approached the subject, 
which the curiosity of his associates had occasionally prompted. There were circumstances, however, which appeared to indicate him to be a man of birth and of fallen fortune. His spirit, as it had sometimes looked forth from under the disguise of his manners, seemed lofty. It shewed not, however, the aspirings of a generous mind, but rather the gloomy pride of a disappointed one. Some few persons in the convent, who had been interested by his appearance, believed that the peculiarities of his manners, his severe reserve and unconquerable silence, his solitary habits and frequent penances, were the effect of misfortunes preying upon a haughty and disordered spirit, while others conjectured them the consequence of some hideous crime gnawing upon an awakened conscience. He would sometimes abstract himself from the society for whole days together, or when with such a disposition he was compelled to mingle with it, he seemed unconscious where he was, and continued shrouded in meditation and silence till he was again alone. There were times when it was unknown whither he had retired, notwithstanding that his steps had been watched and his customary haunts examined. No one ever heard him complain. The elder brothers of the convent said that he had talents, but denied him learning. They applauded him for the profound subtlety which he occasionally discovered in argument, but observed that he seldom perceived truth when it lay on the surface. He could follow it through all the labyrinths of disquisition, but overlooked it when it was undisguised before him. In fact, he cared no for truth, nor sought it by bold and broad argument, but loved to exert the wily cunning of his nature in hunting it through artificial perplexities. At length, from a habit of intricacy and suspicion, his vitiated mind could receive nothing for truth, which was simple and easily comprehended. Among his associates, no one loved him, many disliked him, and more feared him. His figure was striking, but not so from grace. It was tall, and though extremely thin, his limbs were large and uncouth, and as he stalked along, wrapped in the black garments of his order, there was something terrible in its air, something almost superhuman. His cowl, too, as it threw a shade over the livid paleness of his face, increased its severe character, and gave an effect to his large melancholy eye, which approached to horror. His was not the melancholy of a sensible and wounded heart, but apparently that of a gloomy and ferocious disposition. There was something in his physiognomy extremely singular, and that cannot easily be defined. It bore the traces of many passions, which seemed to have fixed the features they no longer animated. An habitual gloom and severity prevailed over the deep lines of his countenance, and his eyes were so piercing that they seemed to penetrate at a single glance into the hearts of men, and to read their most secret thoughts. Few persons could support their scrutiny, or even endure to meet them twice. Yet, notwithstanding all this gloom and austerity, some rare occasions of interest had called forth a character upon his countenance entirely different and he could adapt himself to the tempers and passions of persons whom he wished to conciliate with astonishing facility, and generally with complete triumph. This monk, this Gadoni, was the confessor and secret adviser of the Marchesa de Vivaldi. In the first effervescence of pride and indignation which the discovery of her son's intended marriage occasioned, she consulted him on the means of preventing it, 
and she soon perceived that his talents promised to equal her wishes. Each possessed, in a considerable degree, the power of assisting the other. Skidoni had subtlety with ambition to urge it, and the Marchesa had inexorable pride and courtly influence. The one hoped to obtain a high benefice for his services, and the other to secure the imaginary dignity of her house by her gifts. Prompted by such passions and allured by such views, they concerted in private, and unknown even to the Marchesi, the means of accomplishing their general end. Vivaldi, as he quitted his mother's closet, had met Scidoni in the corridor leading thither. He knew him to be her confessor, and was not much surprised to see him, though the hour was an unusual one. Scidoni bowed his head as he passed, and assumed a meek and holy countenance. But Vivaldi, as he eyed him with a penetrating glance, now recoiled with involuntary emotion, and it seemed as if a shuddering presentiment of what this monk was preparing for him had crossed his mind. End of chapter 2 Recording by Natalie Myers